Amen. Christ is mine forevermore. That's where our hope is found. We found the everlasting treasure. We found the pearl of great price. We have found the one who meets our every need. We have found the one who gives us everything. And we rejoice. And that's why it's so good to be here. To not just rejoice, but to rejoice together. And hopefully you have been encouraged already this morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. If you are using a Bible, uh, if you need a Bible, you don't have one, there's one. should be one under a chair in the row ahead of you. You can grab that and turn to page 1040. We want you to look at the Word of God with us. What I have to say today, um, by God's grace, will not just be my words, will not come from me, but will come from the Scripture. And so we want you to see it for yourself in the Word of God. We've been studying through Matthew 13 and uh, the parables, the parables of the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, we're just going to simply answer the question, what more does Jesus have to tell us about the kingdom of heaven? And uh, he has a lot to tell us, and we're going to cover a lot of ground in, uh, I wouldn't say a short period of time, but in a relatively, comparatively short period of time this morning. Jesus is teaching publicly in parables and then explaining the parables privately to his disciples. And that began in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. And the reason he has turned to parables is because the crowds have repeatedly refused to trust and follow him. And so parables are a form of judgment on those who refuse to be his disciples. People were coming to Christ, coming to follow him in such a way that they were looking for, the most part, they were looking for a healing from diseases. They were also looking for food as he feeds them. They were looking for the signs, the wonders, the miracles. They were looking for the great things. They were also looking for a savior to save them from Roman oppression. But when Jesus begins to teach and begins to call them in a way that they were not expecting or the way they weren't looking, many began to follow him for only the wrong things, uh, personal things, uh, temporary things, physical things, but not follow him as Lord and Savior. And so now his parables and his teaching becomes a form of judgment. He purposely conceals the truth from the crowds, but reveals the truth to his disciples, typically later. And all of this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so as we study these last five parables this morning in Matthew 13, there is much more detail I could go into. There's much that can be drawn out of these parables and the comparisons that we make. Uh, but we're going to move quickly, or rather quickly, so... If there's any questions you have or uh, things you want to talk about after the service, you can talk to me. If you want to talk to me this week, if there's things you have to know and I don't cover it this morning, um, there's always more to talk about, more to learn, and that's what's great about the Scripture. So talk amongst yourselves and, and discuss the things that you see in these parables, and uh, you can talk to me tonight or this morning. I'd love to do that. Before we dig into the Scripture, let's pray together. Father, we know that it is your word that we need, and it is your truth that is uh, most important, far, far more important than any truth we have or any ideas or opinions we, we bring this morning. So we need to hear from you. So open our ears to hear your truth. Open our eyes to see and understand. Open our hearts to receive your word. May we submit to it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 13, we're going to start in verse 31, and then we'll, we'll jump down here in a minute. I'll let you know. We'll start in verse 31. And follow along as I read. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it, is, when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now jump down to uh, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is God's divine revelation to us this morning. May we submit to it. The theme this morning is this. King Jesus gives six more illustrations that explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. You want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Jesus gives six more illustrations, six more parables to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, we need to understand that a parable, and and most of you have been here for at least one of the sermons. We've talked about this already, but a parable is an illustration. And so Jesus uses common, observable objects and practices known to the people that he was speaking to in his primary audience, the people of his day, uh, those around him. And he uses those observable objects and practices to illustrate spiritual truth. Primarily, each parable is given to illustrate one main truth. And then there can be a lot of other things you can pull out of it, other applications and things to, to see from it. But we want to really focus this morning on what each parable says and the main truth of it, and then how that applies to our lives. And so the first two parables given in verses 31 and 33 are Two parables that talk about the growth of the kingdom. The growth of the kingdom, verses 31 through 33. And so there's two illustrations that Jesus gives. And the question that these answers, these answer are, what will happen with Christ's kingdom? What will happen with the kingdom that Christ has inaugurated? What's coming next? And so, in a sense, these two parables are prophetic. Here's how it begins, and this is how it will end. So the kingdom of heaven has small and insignificant beginnings, yet it will greatly increase. That's the main point of both of the, actually that's the main point of the first parable. The kingdom of heaven has small and insignificant beginnings, yet it will greatly increase. So the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of seeds. When it grows, it's the largest of all garden plants and becomes a tree. So sturdy that the birds of the air come and make their nest in it. It's large, it's sturdy, so you have the smallest seed known to uh, the people of Jesus' day, the mustard seed, and it turns into this large bush, uh, like a tree, 10 to 15 feet in height at its maturity. And uh, so this is the idea. And, and people of Jesus, they would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. They would know what a mustard seed was. They would know what a mustard bush, mustard tree would look like. Um, but there are those who have taken this parable and this truth that Jesus is giving and tried to use this as a demonstration that Jesus is ignorant of truth. There are things that Jesus doesn't know because anyone who has any scientific knowledge today would know that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed known to man. But that's okay because Jesus wasn't talking to us today with all the scientific knowledge we have. He was talking to the people of his day there in Israel. He was talking to people and the smallest seed that they knew about at that time in that place was the mustard seed. So what Craig Blomberg says to explain this so-called mistake in the scripture is that Jesus is not speaking in absolute terms as a biologist, but in the frame of normal experience in Jewish agriculture. So this is not an example of Jesus not being omniscient or the Bible giving false information. The question I have is, what kind of illustration would it be to use the smallest seed in the world and tell a story about that with people who wouldn't even be familiar with the seed, wouldn't even know why he's using it, wouldn't know what it looks like when it grows up? Anytime you give an illustration, the only time an illustration is effective is if you're using an illustration that people who hear you understand. So sometimes when I preach, I will use illustrations of things about which you are ignorant. And you sit there and you go, I don't know how that fits or how that applies. And so the best illustrations are those that illustrates the truth that you are familiar with. And so the smallest seed that Jewish people were familiar with at that time, in that day, was the mustard seed. And that seed, when it is planted, grows up to be the largest plant in the garden. 
not the largest tree in the forest. Notice he's very specific. He's talking about garden plants. And so most garden plants, uh, most things that you would plant in the garden or plant in a field uh, at their largest, I mean, how tall does a stalk of corn grow? Is it like above your head just a little bit? And that's, that's as big as it gets. Well, how big is 10 or 15 feet? So if you were to plant a mustard seed in your field today and it were to grow to maturity, you would have this large bush that would look very much like a small tree, 10 to 15 feet high. That would tower over anything else you could plant in the garden or anything else you could plant in the field. And that is the point. D.A. Carson summarizes it this way. Though the initial appearance of the kingdom may seem inconsequential, the tiny seed leads to the mature plant. The smallest plant becomes the largest bush in the garden. That's the idea. It's the growth of the kingdom. Small to large. That's what Jesus is trying to teach. And that leads us to think through the application of how we think about the kingdom of heaven today. Have you ever thought about the fact that the gospel came from Jerusalem and made its way to Owasso, Michigan? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about how, how did the gospel get from Israel to here? Do you know the history of the church? Do you know the history of the spread of the gospel enough where you can trace the gospel from Jesus to us here? Do you know how the gospel came to you personally? The people that shared the gospel with you first? Do you understand the history? So do you know how the, how the gospel came to North America? Think about it. At the time that Jesus Christ gave this parable, what did they know of North America? Nobody in Jesus' time and place, no one in the Roman Empire had any inkling, any knowledge of the entire continent of North America. And yet 2,000 years later, we have churches, gospel-preaching churches, all across this land. How does that happen? How do you start with such something so small? The, the apostles could not have fathomed the reach of the gospel because they couldn't even fathom how big the world was. Now, we are familiar with all of those things. But think about it. Acts 1, 120 disciples in an upper room. And now, the statistics say this, there are an estimated 2.4 billion Christians around the world. Now, I don't buy into the biggest number. But if you just were to have that by true Christians, not just those who claim to be Christians, you have a billion Christians from 120 in one location now across the world in over a billion followers of Jesus Christ, the largest religion in the world. That is what Jesus is talking about. That's the point. Well, he gives another related Illustration, parable about the growth, the kingdom of heaven will positively influence the entire world despite its small and insignificant beginnings. So he gives a second illustration. He starts with the illustration for the men. He got a, an illustration about the field. Then he has one for the women, talking about um, having uh, a woman who is baking bread and is hiding the yeast into another lump of dough. That's the idea. So because you didn't want to lose the yeast, you would take a, a break off a piece of the lump and you stick it in another piece of dough and that leaven would leaven that lump so you could make more bread and it, you would keep that yeast going. Now, I have never baked bread in my life. And if you have baked bread and you have used the bread machine, neither have you. All right? Have you ever really baked bread? Have you made bread from scratch? Have you ever used yeast? Have you ever used leaven? Have you ever understood the principle behind this? Hopefully you understand the principle of just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast will go throughout the entire amount. Do you see it happening? Can you watch it with your eyes? No, no, it's imperceptible to the eye. It just happens. And, and you can see the results later, but you, you don't see it. it. There's something that's small. It's a little bit will go through the entire lump. That's what the Bible says in other places. So this is speaking to the idea of transformation and permeation. This yeast that permeates the entire lump, it transforms and makes it different. The spread cannot be stopped. You have to get the leaven completely out or it will continue to work. It spreads organically. It spreads silently and imperceptibly. There's a lot of things we could talk about that. 
So we're talking about the permeation of the kingdom of heaven. Revelation tells us that every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation will be reached with the gospel. It will permeate the world. It will get into places that the disciples could not even know existed, to people groups that they didn't even know were there. Are there people groups? Are there languages? Are there, are, are there tribes somewhere that have not yet been reached with the gospel? What is Wycliffe trying to do right now? And faith comes by hearing, trying to reach by 2030. What are you trying to reach, Frank? 2033. What does that mean? Twenty thirty three. Every language group that has not yet had the gospel in written or spoken form, it's there. Thousands of languages reached, and they have made tremendous progress with technology, with the recording work. So many people now are hearing the gospel in their own language who had never heard it before. Those who cannot read are now hearing the gospel. The gospel is permeating in ways that even Christians a hundred years ago could not fathom with the idea of the technology we have now to put things digitally on these little things that you can send around the world and you can plug them in, you can put them in, put them, connect them to headphones or whatever, and you can listen to the gospel in ways we could never understand before. This is beyond, and yet, did Christ know? Is Christ prophesying, prophetically illustrating the impact of the kingdom from this tiny group to billions of people over, uh, over the world, just now, but over, over history, to every tribe and every tongue and every people? And what, this, what these illustrations need to do is they need to destroy our despair. They need to destroy our hopelessness that God's kingdom will suffer defeat. These parables are given for our encouragement. If it seems as if the church of Jesus Christ has no power, no influence, uh, no work, it seems as if, if the church of Jesus Christ is being defeated, slowly shrunk down, slowly defeated. If you look around your church and say, there's fewer people here than there was 10 years ago, and there'll be fewer people here 10 years from now, and there's less Christians and less influence, and Christianity seems to be eradicated, especially where we live and in the nation that God has placed us, don't forget what Christ said. What you see here, what you see in our nation, is not the totality of Christ's kingdom. It's not the totality of what Christ is doing. It has reached billions of people in 2,000 years. It has reached around the world, moving its way into every tribe and every nation, every people group. The kingdom of heaven will triumph. It will triumph, and we must remember. We cannot forget what Christ has said, and this is for our encouragement. We need, we need this word today. I need this word today. That's the growth of the kingdom. Secondly, in verses 44 and 45, he gives two illustrations of the value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom. How valuable is Christ's kingdom? What is the kingdom of heaven worth? The main point is this, from both parables, actually both parables teach the same main point. The kingdom of heaven is worth anything and everything. The kingdom of heaven is worth anything and everything. So the first illustration, there's a treasure, it's hidden in a field, and there's a man who finds the treasure. He's probably working. He's working for someone else. He's a, he's a common field laborer. He might be tilling the ground. He might be doing some sort of work. And he stumbles upon some treasure. He uncovers a hidden treasure in the field. You say, that's insane. That's crazy. That never happens. Uh, today, that would be probably true. It rarely happens that you stumble upon, just in a field somewhere, hidden treasure. But in a time when there are no banks... When there's no stock market, when you're afraid of thieves breaking in and stealing things, you've got to take all your valuables, all of your treasure, and find a place to hide it where no one would think to look. And I just want to let you know that if you are hiding your valuables in your underwear drawer at home, that's the first place they look. That's not a good hiding place, okay? So just, just that's a little tip, a little preacher tip this morning. Find a better hiding place. Where do you hide stuff in your home you want nobody to find? Well, just ask the biggest sinner in your family. All right, who's the biggest sinner? Ask them. They'll know the best hiding places. You got to find those devious, secretive people who are doing bad things. So you're digging around because someone says no one's going to look in the middle of this field. And they won't. 
And so they would find that. So you would find if you were working in the Middle East and other places, you would sometimes stumble upon things that people had hidden that they, for some reason, hadn't come back to find. They had died before they could dig it back up, all kinds of things. This is very, this is a true situation, a realistic situation. The second illustration is a little simpler for us to understand. You have uh, someone who works with pearls, someone who buys and sells pearls, a merchant, and he's always looking for the best pearls, and uh, he's looking for fine pearls. He's looking for all kinds of pearls, but he comes across a pearl that is worth all of the other pearls. He finds one pearl worth everything, and so he sells those things and, and does that. And going back to the other illustration, just in case you're wondering if this worker is deceitful for what he did, uh, actually because of these laws, um, if the worker were to dig that treasure up and then run off with it, while working for the owner of the field, that would be stealing. But if this man were to cover it back up and go to the owner of the field and say, you know what, I was thinking I could, I'd buy this field from you. And he says, well, what do you think about offering? And say, you know, it's what, about uh, $10,000 an acre? So I'll give you $10,000 for the field. And the, and the master of the field, the owner of the field says, okay, I'll sell it for $10,000. Not knowing that there's a $10 million treasure buried in this field, which would tell us the owner of the field was not the person who buried the treasure. And so he buys the field, and if you buy a field, you get everything that's in the field. And that's why he couldn't take it. He had to buy the field and get the treasure that was in it. Just trying to help you understand the situation. But just understanding the illustrations from a humanistic perspective is not the point. What is Jesus Christ trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us that Christ is worth anything and everything. So having Christ as your king... And living submissively under his rule in his kingdom is worth anything and everything. Notice in the first parable, notice the joy of this man. What is his joy related to? His joy is that he's going to sell all that he has. Have you ever been in a place where you had such a high debt, such a great thing that you had to do everything you can, pretty much sell some really important things to you. You had to sell your home to get out from under debt. You had to sell uh, cars you liked or vehicles you liked or you had to sell possessions. You had this tremendous debt and you had to sell things to pay someone off. You remember the joy when you sold all those things off so you could pay your debt? Remember those, that joy? I can't, get, can't wait to get rid of my prized possessions to pay a debt. Is there joy there? No. This man is willingly deciding to sell all the stuff he has because he's found something worth everything. All of his prized possessions, all of his baseball cards, all of his little teacups, all of his, you know, spoons that he's been collecting from all 50 states, all of the fine china handed down from generation to generation, the golden, the gold-plated silverware that's stuck in the basement that you received as a wedding gift. All the good stuff goes. Why? Because we found something worth everything. Can you imagine finding something that you would sell everything you had to purchase? Some of you say, yeah, I can see that, man. I got like, I, I, you know, what's your net worth? My, I got about $10 worth of stuff. I'd sell that for a treasure. But the older you get and the more you accumulate and the more stuff is stuffed in your basement and out in the barn and then the she shed and then the bigger barn and then the pole barn and the fourth barn, you start thinking, I got a lot of stuff. You know, what, what are you worth? All your stuff. Are you, do you have a million dollars worth of stuff? Some of you might have more than that. Sell it all because we found something worth it all. But notice the cost is not a burden, but a joy. This is not a sad day for this man. This is the best day of his life. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Oh, happy day, the day he washed my sin away. Worth it all. Have you experienced that joy? Have you experienced the happiness of having Christ as your Lord and Savior, taking all of your guilt and shame, paying your price, relieving you of that burden? Do you know that joy? The sacrifice of what it costs to have Christ doesn't sadden but gladdens the heart. You won't regret the cost. Christ is worth it. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't count the cost. You have to count the cost. Because it is going to cost you anything and everything. It doesn't mean that he's going to ask for everything up front, but you don't know what it's going to cost you to follow Christ. You can guess at some of the cost. You can assume some of the cost, but he must be worth it all because there will come a time and place where he will cost you something really valuable, if not many things very valuable to you. 
And if you don't count the cost, you will begin to follow Christ. And then when the cost comes, you will say, no, 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 he's not worth that. And you will turn away. After having put your hand to the plow, you will let go and you'll walk back. You will have appeared to be a Christian because you will have followed Christ for a while, but not having counted the cost, you will turn away. He is worth it all. He's worth anything and everything. And so Christ doesn't hide the cost. You ever, you ever tried to buy something, you buy a house or you purchase something, and, and they, they give you these contracts, and they say, okay, here's 10 pages. Sign here, initial here, 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 and sign here. And you say, okay, I, sh- I should probably read all this because this is all, of, this is all the fine print, right? How many of you read it all? No, sign, 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 sign. And, and then, and then two years later, they knock on your door and say, we're taking your house. You say, what do you mean you're taking your house? Well, right here in the contract, it says... If this happens, we can have your house. You say, but I didn't read that. Is that what Christ does? Is Christ trying to hide the cost somewhere in the fine print? In many so-called churches today, the gospel preached by many so-called preachers is health and wealth, prosperity gospel, whereby you don't lose anything to gain Christ. You gain Christ, and when you gain Christ, you gain way more. How about that fine print? How about if you're reading your Bible after hearing that gospel, you come across these parables? How do they make sense? Well, they make sense because the treasure's worth more than what you gave up. Yeah, but notice what you had to do. You had to give up all to follow Christ. I want to point out some things here, just a couple things in these parables. The first man, the treasure of the kingdom, is found by those who aren't looking He just stumbles across this treasure in the course of his daily life. He's just doing his daily work. He's not looking for treasure. He's not a treasure hunter. He's just a common field laborer. And so here you are this morning, just another Sunday morning, daydreaming in church, doing what you always do, not even listening to what the preacher's saying, someplace else, thinking about something else. Yet, all of a sudden, maybe this morning, the sudden truth of the gospel is clear. So you found something you had never seen before. You understand what was meaningless before. You've found the treasure that is Christ. Somehow, through the gospel message, through the singing of the songs, through the the truth, you have had your eyes open to a treasure you've never heard about or never understood. And so this morning, you have an opportunity. You found the treasure. Jesus Christ is the treasure. He is the pearl of great value. He's worth everything. And anything. And in this moment, God's mercy and grace has come to you. So how can you, after looking at this treasure, find this treasure, go, just go on today as if the treasure doesn't exist, as if Christ is just another good man, another good teacher, another famous person from the past. How can you go on? If you see Christ to be the treasure, you can't. The second person teaches us that the treasure of kingdom, the treasure of the kingdom is found by those who don't know what they are looking for. So this man, excuse me, this merchant was looking for pearls. So he was looking for what is valuable. Excuse me. He was looking for something valuable. He was looking for something lasting. Pearls are valuable. They hold value. They last. But he didn't really know what to look for. So he thought he knew what value was. He thought he knew what treasure was. He thought he knew what pearls were worth. He thought he knew, but he came across something that blew his mind, something that was far greater than anything he could imagine. So you might be here this morning searching for something valuable, purpose, meaning in life, something that, is, that, that, that lasts longer than the temporary and fleeting pleasures that you found so far, something that, that's more awesome than a new video game at Christmas that you've already defeated, already conquered, and now are bored with. Just two weeks later, better than any toy, better than any new vehicle, better than any new house, better than any possession at all. You're looking for something that has true satisfaction. And you've searched and you've searched for what will make you truly happy. Something that will give you lasting joy and satisfaction. And everything has come up empty. Everything that's been joyful and satisfying and wonderful It has come and it has gone. It has been great maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for a year, maybe for a decade, but it has faded. You're looking for something that will really satisfy. It will really be worth it all. And the Bible is clear. I want you to understand this and hear this. No one seeks for God. 
You might be searching, but you're not searching for God. You're searching for joy. You're searching for pleasure. You're searching for satisfaction. You don't really know what to look for. You don't know where true satisfaction, joy, and pleasure are found. But this morning, the gospel is clear. The truth is clear. It's found in Christ. Jesus Christ is the satisfaction of all your searching for joy and pleasure, for meaning, for purpose in life. He is the end of your search. What will you do? Will you sell all of your lesser pearls for the one pearl of great value? Will you give up all those other things that bring joy and satisfaction, even though slight and temporary? Will you? Is he worth it all? Or is he just one pearl among many? Maybe, maybe I'll take you, maybe I won't. In Mark chapter 10, we see the story of the rich young ruler who came to Christ looking for truth, had questions. And Christ gave him the truth that he was a sinner because he had not kept the law of God perfectly. And how did he do that? Because he said, oh, have you kept the law? And he gave him a few commandments. And he said, well, I've kept all those since I was a kid. And then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure. Where? In heaven, treasure. And then come and follow me. And what did the rich young ruler do? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, sorrowful for he had great possessions. He, he had all kinds of lesser pearls. He had all kinds of wonderful things that seemed to bring some joy and satisfaction. When Christ said, hey, I am worth everything you have. Sell it all, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. What did the man do? He said, no. You're not worth that to me. Now, does Jesus demand that every person who becomes a Christian sell all their stuff, give it to the poor, so they can become a Christian? No. This is not how you become a Christian. But it's a demonstration that if you're not willing to give it all up for Christ, then he is not your everything. He is not your treasure. He is not your Lord. He is not your master because you want other things. You might want to throw Jesus Christ in as a part of your life, but Jesus Christ as king demands total submission, total service, total love. You cannot have anything above him, next to him. Everything comes below him and after him. Is Jesus Christ worth it all to you? Have you trusted him as Lord? Are you following him? Have you trusted him as Savior? Are you following him as Lord? Have you found him to be the pearl of great value, the treasure worth everything? Well, then there's the warning. The warning of the kingdom, the parable of the net. So there were two parables that taught the growth of the kingdom, two parables that talk the worth of the kingdom, and now just one parable that gives the warning of the kingdom. And it's similar to the warning we saw last week in the parable of the weeds. But here, Jesus Christ gives the truth more sim in a more simple form, more straightforwardly. And the idea is this. If you're a fisherman, one of the ways they would fish on the Sea of Galilee, just giving you one example, is they would have one boat, and they have a massive net, and they tie the one end of the net to the shore, and they get in the boat with the other net, and they'd have floats on top to keep the net up. They have weights on the bottom to keep the net on the bottom. And then in a big arc, they would, they would paddle their boat or oar their boat out and bring that big net around and then bring it all back to shore and pull that net all the way to shore. And what would you do with a net all the way down? You'd get pretty much any fish of any size in that big arc. And then you had to decide what fish are worth selling, what fish are worth keeping, and get rid of the rest, the good fish and the bad fish. That's, that's the illustration. Well, how does Christ use that illustration, and what does he say? And here, Christ explains it. This is the only parable that he really explains this morning. He, he lets us use the other parables and the other explanations as a template, but now he does go into some detail on this one. So Jesus says in verse 49, so it will be at the close of the age. The end of the age is compared to the drawing of a huge net that captures, notice carefully, all the fish in that area. All the fish are captured at the end of the age. Who are the fish? Well, this morning you are a fish. I am a fish. All people are fish of all kinds, yet still fish. Now, who comes and separates them who are, in a sense, the fishermen here? Well, it's the angels. The angels are the men who separate the good fish from the bad fish. Notice carefully, this is not a parable given to Christians about fishing. 
Christ teaches that in other places. This is a parable that's different. It's a warning about what happens at the end of the age. At the end of the age, every person will have to face the judgment of God. That's the warning. Listen carefully. If you have heard that Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price, the great treasure of all treasures, and this morning, no matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how many times the gospel's presented, you have rejected him, you have turned away from him, you are not following him, know this, the judgment of God is coming at the end of the age. Every person will face the judgment of God. No fish can escape the net, and no person will escape the judgment. So if you're listening to this sermon this morning, hearing the truth proclaimed from the scripture, this is a warning to you. Judgment awaits. And if you never heard this sermon, guess what would happen? Judgment awaits. The truth is the truth. At the end of the age, this is what's going to happen to every person who ever lived in the entire world. There's judgment awaiting. Notice also there are only two categories of people. Two kinds of fish. Righteous and evil. Notice that this is about people, not fish, because I don't know if you've ever met a righteous or evil fish, but he says that's righteous and evil. It's talking about people. The righteous are the sons of the kingdom, the disciples of Jesus Christ, what we call Christians today, and that was dealt with in the parable of the weeds. So if you are not a disciple, if you are not a person who submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ, trusting him for salvation from your sins, then by default, you are an evil person. Again, we have two categories, only two categories. There are the righteous and the evil. If you're not righteous by being a disciple of Christ, that means you are the evil, as Christ demonstrates it. I want you to hear this carefully. These aren't my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ. If you have a problem with being termed an evil person because you're not a Christian, take it up with Jesus. I'm just telling you what the Bible says because it's the truth you must hear. There is no mythical third category of righteous, evil, and decent. Everybody wants to be that decent person who's not a follower of Christ, but not really so bad you have to go to hell. I want to be kind of that, you know, you know, one foot here, one foot there, kind of moving my way around. Self-identifying is whatever I want to identify at the time. This is Jesus saying, no, there's only two categories. It's, in a sense, it's just black and white. It's, it's so clear here. And notice there's also only one destination for those who are evil. There's only one destination for those who are evil. It is hell. And here, again, like the parable of the weeds, it is compared to a fiery furnace. The evil people will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of eternal destruction, a place of eternal sorrow, a place of eternal suffering. This is the warning of what it does when you come to the treasure in the field, when you come to the pearl of great value, and you say, no thanks, I don't think it's worth that much. I don't think Christ really is worth anything. I'm not going to give up anything. I'm definitely not going to give up everything to follow Christ. I'll do things my way. I'll have myself as my own Lord, my Savior. Whatever it is, you must hear the warning of Christ today. And then the last parable we're going to talk about this morning, verses 51 and 52, the training of the kingdom. There's the growth of the kingdom, the value of the kingdom, the warning of the kingdom, and now the training of the kingdom. It's interesting, before he gives this last illustration in Matthew 13, this last parable, Jesus sets up the disciples. Notice carefully, the disciples are the main audience here. He sets them up with a question, have you understood all these things? Now, if you go back and read the beginning of Matthew 13, you'll understand that the the first two parables Christ gives... They don't understand. They clearly don't understand because they come to Jesus and say, what did you mean? Explain these to us. And now Christ gives more parables and more illustrations. He says, do you understand? Do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? Now, do you think the disciples understood everything Jesus Christ was saying? Like they went from needing explanation to now I don't need any help. No, but the idea is, do you basically get the gist? Do you get the main points of what I'm saying? Do you understand the points about the kingdom of heaven? And they say, yes. I'll take them at their word. Why would we doubt? And so the point here, though, is is, is set up by the question. The point is understanding. Do you understand? Understanding. Keep that in mind. That's the main point. And then he gives another parable that focuses on understanding. Therefore, if you have understanding, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like. So we have one side, every scribe, a scribe who's been trained, 
Trained now, notice carefully, for the kingdom of heaven, that's the turning point, is like, and then he gives the parable the illustration, is like the master of a house, the king in his castle, the hired honcho, the big man, whatever you want to say there, the person who brings out of his vault the treasure chest, the treasure room, what is new and what is old. So you are the owner of the house, you're the master of the house, and if you want to have some guests over and you want to wow them with all your cool treasures, you go into the vault. Most of you probably don't have a treasure room, but if you have some possessions, you might have a safe, and if you have a lot of stuff, you might have a massive vault, and you go in there and you bring out the stuff you've had for 20 years and the stuff you bought yesterday. You want to show off your treasures, and that's what this man can do. What does that have to do with a scribe and the training of the kingdom? Well, this is the point. The training of the kingdom here, we need to understand, is discipleship. So a scribe is a Jewish teacher who had wisdom because they'd been trained and also authority to teach the truth. And they had become scribes through training. And that word training in the original language of the Greek is the word for discipleship. Discipled. These scribes had been discipled. And because they had been trained, they were able to now train and teach others. So the point is this. Every disciple of Jesus Christ, every scribe discipled for the kingdom, every teacher trained for the kingdom of heaven, will be a teacher who brings out treasures, both old and new. Treasures old and new. And you say, well, this is where it gets hard. So before we get to the hard part, I just want to say this, as we understand this. Discipleship is still the method today. Are you trained for the kingdom of heaven? Have you been discipled? Are you so discipled that you can disciple others? You can teach others? Are you a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven? Or are you a believer, a follower of Christ, still in need of tremendous training? Discipleship is still the method today. It was the method Christ is pointing to as he's teaching. And 2,000 years later, it's still the method. The method hasn't changed. There's no pill I can give you that will train you for the kingdom of heaven. There's there's nothing I can download into your brain. No osmosis that will work so that tomorrow you will wake up with all of the information, all the understanding of the scripture so that you can teach others the truth. It takes years. It takes decades. It takes your entire life of working hard to be trained in the scriptures to know what the truth is, being discipled in that truth, so you can be a scribe, a teacher of others. Now notice what all of this training is for. The training, or the result of the training, is mastery. It's mastery. You're so trained and so discipled that you can teach others, and you can teach others in such a way that you bring out the old and the new. And this is the purpose of, the purpose of this mastery is for the purpose of teaching. You're not being discipled just to be super intelligent. Some of you here today love knowledge. <laughs> Some of you don't love knowledge. Some of you love to read and study and you just can't, you, another book, another lesson, another class. I'm, you're the person who would have stayed in college as long as your parents would have paid for it. Or as long as you could afford it, you would have gotten 10 master's degrees, eight PhDs. You would still be in college today because you love to learn. Now, others of you say, I have no desire to go to another day of school the rest of my life. If I could quit school today, I would be the happiest person. And you're only six years old. you got a ways to go. I remember when I finished up my bachelor's at college, uh, I, I had the option because I was single and debt-free by God's grace. I could go on to get my master's or go on and get, uh, move on to further education. But you know what I said? I said, you know what? I am just tired of, of school. I want to go out and do something with what I've learned. Now, I kind of regret that decision to some degree. Um, but God uses all things, even our own foolishness, and, and does things with us. But uh, I, I was tired of school. I was tired of more education. And then later, after I, I was married and had a child, guess what I decided I wanted to do? Get more education. And then it got a lot harder. <laughs> I had a full-time job and a family to take care of and bills to pay, and now I'm trying to get some more education. Some of you have done that route as well, and you understand the difficulty of it. But this is not education for the sake of education. This isn't knowledge for the sake of knowledge. This isn't about making you a smarter person. This is discipleship for the purpose of teaching. Scribes were trained so that they could teach. They learned the scriptures so they could teach others the scriptures. 
And so we must understand that our desire for knowing the scriptures is first of all for our own edification, of course, our own knowledge and training, of course, our own growth and walk with the Lord, of course. But it's not simply to stop there. We take that truth and teach others. So if you say, well, I can't really teach anyone else, but I know enough for me. No, it's not enough. If you can't teach others, if you can't disciple your children, if you can't disciple your wife, if you can't help your husband learn and grow, if you don't know these things, if you don't know that, you have much more to go, much further to go. You cannot stop. Just if you're satisfied with how much you know, you must be able to teach others also. Now, what is the old and the new? I will take what D.A. Carson says as probably my best understanding of what this means, bringing out treasure, what is new and what is old. He says it this way. The Old Testament promises of Messiah and kingdom, as well as Old Testament law and piety, have found their fulfillment in Jesus' person, teaching, and kingdom. The old fulfilled in the new. The old fulfilled in Christ. And the scribe, who has become a disciple of the kingdom, now brings out of himself, what he's learned, deep understanding of these things and their transformed perspective affecting all of life. I understand the Old Testament I understand the New Testament. I understand the Old Covenant. I understand the New Covenant. I understand how the Old was promised and the New fulfilled. And I know how to bring those two things together so I can teach others all things they need for life. Now, does that sound like something you're going to get in a year or two? I'm going to understand everything in the Old Testament. I understand all the promises and all the covenants of the Old. I understand how they're all fulfilled in the New, especially how they're fulfilled in Christ. And I can bring any Old Testament passage connected to the, the relative passages in the, in the New Testament. And I can just bring all those things together, no problem. And then I can teach others how to do that. If you've been a Christian longer than like six months, you'd sit there and go, how many times have you read through the Scripture? How many times have you read through the, the book of Joel? Amos, Obadiah, Lamentations. How many times have you gone through Hebrews, Romans? Bring those together. Understand their fulfillment. Understand that. I've been, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've done a lot of study. read a lot of things. been in the Word a lot. And man, it, it, it's a lifetime. Are you working on it? Are you making progress? Do you know enough to be able to teach the basics? I'm not talking about having a PhD in these things, but do you know enough to teach the basics? Do you, do you understand? Do you have that fundamental basic knowledge, fundamental mastery of some of the, the gospel and how it's applied and how it's lived out? Do you understand uh, roles and responsibilities in life? Do you, do you have these things down? Can you teach others? Can you train others? Do you have that kind of mastery? What I feel like we are missing big time and, and, and just in recent times, it's become apparent to me that, that we fail so much in this. We have lost our faith in the sufficiency of scriptures. I'm going to get real personal and just throw something at you. and not going to talk much about it, but you'll be hearing more from me in the weeks to come. So be patient, be thoughtful, receive what I have to say in the best spirit of charity. In the old use of the word charity, such as love and acceptance, which is this. How much do you know about what the Bible says about quarantine, mask wearing, vaccinations, illnesses, and viruses? How much do you know about what the Bible says about that? Or how much do you know about this study, that study, this scientist, that scientist, this news channel, that news channel, this person, that person? When we begin to talk about the situation we find ourselves in, in this time of coronavirus, do we find ourselves arguing about the science, about the studies, about the mandates, about the masks, about those things? Or do we find ourselves going to the scriptures to see what they have to say about a handle, how to handle a viral outbreak, infection, illness, and disease? I would venture to say two things. One... Most of us don't have any firsthand information when it comes to science and, and, and uh, studies and tests and the data. We just repeat what we've heard other people say. And I say that on both sides of the equation. But secondly, when worse than that, is we don't know what the Bible says about these things, and we never talk about it from a biblical perspective. Which means we are saying that the Bible doesn't give us any indication, any help, anything 
old or new, of how to live at the time God has placed us, to know how to live, to know what to do, what are our responsibilities, because we don't know the Scriptures. And therefore, we begin to act like those who don't even know Christ, the one who's given the Scriptures, so that we don't have anything to do, so we begin to act like pagans in our response. It doesn't matter where you stand on the spectrum. If you are not going to the Scripture and following up what the Scripture says and basing your decisions on the Scripture primarily, first and foremost, then you are acting as a pagan. We're just going to experts and science and not putting these things into practice from the Scripture. Now, you say, well, that was nicely controversial. Thank you for throwing that out there this morning. Old and new. Do we know the Old and New Testaments and how they apply to life today? Did God leave us incapable of having divine revelation of how to act at a time like this? Or has God spoken sufficiently to direct us? And if you don't know where that's at in the Scripture, that's your homework assignment for the next two or three weeks. Quit watching the news, quit listening to people, and study the Word. Find what God has to say. Don't just listen to what anybody has to say, no matter who they are, even if it's me. And you say, don't worry, Pastor, no problem. We've got no problem ignoring what you have to say. Now, in conclusion, from these six parables, these six illustrations, what does God's Word, God's word give us this morning? He gives us encouragement for the discouraged and despairing. If you've been discouraged or despairing this week, God's word gives you encouragement. Also, he gives hope for the satisfied and searching. I don't mean rightly satisfied. I mean satisfied like I'm not looking for Christ, but wait a second. I found out that I'm, I don't have what I need. Wrongly satisfied. Too, satisfied with too little. He gives hope. He also gives a warning to those who are evil. And then lastly, he gives guidance to the righteous. We want to be scribes discipled for the kingdom so that we can understand the Old and New Testaments and how they apply to where we are today. That's what God's word tells us in these parables. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Where is God speaking to you this morning? What has he said to you? What will you do in response? Let's pray. Father, encourage the discouraged. Give hope to the lost. May the evil, those who have not trusted in Christ, hear the warning clearly. And for those who know Christ, may they be given tremendous guidance into what we are supposed to be doing now in learning and growing in the knowledge of the Scriptures, that we would be trained teachers, discipled teachers, teaching others, old and new, for your glory. We are your people. This is your church. We give ourselves to you this morning and ask you to change us and to bring us out of this place different than when we came. In Jesus' name, amen.